Let me see, a new arrival, any, uh, any other new arrivals? And Jim, welcome Jim, good to see you. Okay. Great. So we're gonna start our mornings off with some Dharma study some touching base with the tradition of the practitioners and the voices of the past in the Buddhist tradition that have celebrated the power of wild spaces and wild things. And so we're going to be dipping into the early Buddhist teachings this morning and tomorrow dipping into the Tibetan tradition or possibly the Zen tradition. I've been going back and forth, which one? And then on the final day, the other one either Zen or Tibetan, depending on what we didn't do on tomorrow. So we're going to look this morning at this sutta that comes out of the Pali Canon, out of the early, the earliest collection that we have of the Buddha's teachings. And some of you may know or may not know that during the Buddha's lifetime, none of his teachings were written down. And the Buddha possibly encouraged that, I don't know, but they were recited and memorized. So his teachings were memorized and then recited um, it was an oral tradition for about 50 years or so um, after the Buddha's death. And then there was a, a kind of a conference in which the disciples of the Buddha, who was now deceased, came together and they decided we should really write this down before it's lost. And so they had a, a council and they recited the teachings and someone wrote them down. And that became what we know as the suttas or the sutras in, in Sanskrit. They exist in Sanskrit. They exist in many languages now. They exist in English. In fact, you can find them on the internet. <laughs> there is a website which I'm going to mention to you now, that's where this comes from, Access to Insight. And it is the entire Pali canon, the entire Pali version translated into English. So it's an incredible resource. You can dig around in there for things that you might be wanting to know about. You can, it's searchable. It's very cool that it exists. So 
So these, eventually, these teachings of the Buddha these, and stories of the contexts of the teachings were written down. And myself, I find the stories and the contexts almost as interesting as the teachings themselves, just how the setup, the setup, who was present. It, it gives us this little window into a world. And, and once in a while, um, and most of the time, there's a where. Where, where did this happen? So all of these suttas begin the same way. They begin with the words. Here, here he says, I have heard. Um, some translators, the earlier translators, at least of my generation, translated that as, thus have I heard. The suttas begin with, thus have I heard. Why? Because they were an oral tradition. And it's almost like, it's interesting, right? They didn't have to be included. It's included in every sutta as a reminder that this came from the disciples of the Buddha and they were, they were reciting or they were telling stories of what they had heard and captures that sense of an oral tradition, of a storytelling tradition of a tradition of chanting and recitation and memorization. So they begin with this I have heard. I love that also because of the implication there of the power of listening, the power of hearing. Thus I have heard the power of deep listening in this tradition that it's a part of that, of this lineage. And on this retreat, we're going to be doing that practice together, some out in the wild. We're going to be practicing deep listening to see what do we hear in those wild spaces. What kind of dhamma or dharma comes into our ears and into our body, comes through us. So this, there's a sense in the suttas of this power of receptivity. Thus I have heard. I was, thus I was receptive, and this filled my vessel, and now I'm pouring it forth. You know, this idea of that this, this tradition of, of receiving and absorbing and pouring forth, like a river from generation to generation. So, so they begin that way, and then they begin with a place, as this one does. So why don't we start with, with hearing a deep listening uh, to the sutta. And so I'd like you guys to read it uh, aloud. Um, and, and, and not to read aloud together, I'd like to pass it around. Um, so um, I'm just... This is, a bit and when we were in a circle it was so much easier because really it was in this you know natural line but maybe what we'll do is go around the perimeter of the room and then on our next day we'll go a little bit inside the room or something like that so would you mind beginning and we'll do paragraph by paragraph so do a paragraph and then pass it to um, the next person
person behind you. Yes. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Unapaya in the mangrove grove. And on that occasion, Venerable Padaya, Kalagoda's son, on going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, would repeatedly exclaim, What bliss! What bliss! A large number of monks heard then Vadaya Kalpoda sung, on going to the wilderness to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, repeatedly exclaimed, What bliss! What bliss! And on hearing him, the thought occurred to them, there's no doubt but that Ven Vadaya Kalboda's son Venerable. It's venerable. Venerable. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Doesn't enjoy leading the holy life. For when he was a householder, he knew the bliss of kingship. So that now, on recollecting that when going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, to an empty dwelling, he's repeatedly exclaiming, What a bliss! What a bliss! So they went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they told him, Venerable Padaya, Kalagoda's son, Lord, I'm going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, repeatedly exclaims, What bliss! What bliss! There's no doubt but that Venerable Padaya doesn't enjoy leading the holy life. For when he was a householder, he knew the bliss of kingship. So that now, on recollecting that when going to the wilderness, to the root of the tree, or to an empty dwelling, he's repeatedly exclaiming, What bliss! What bliss! Then the Blessed One told a certain monk, Come, monk, in my name call Bidaya, saying, The teacher calls you, friend. Responding, as you say, Lord, to the Blessed One, the monk went to the Venerable Badaya, Kaliyogoda's son, and on arrival he said to him, The teacher calls you, friend Badaya. Oh. I'm sorry. Responding, as you say, my friend, to the monk, Venerable. Maintaining the bliss of kingship, Lord, 
I had guards posted within and without royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, on going alone to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, living on the gifts of others, with my mind like a wild deer. This is the compelling reason I have in mind that when going to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. Then, on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One on that occasion exclaimed, From whose heart there is no provocation, and for whom becoming and non-becoming overcome. He, beyond fear, blissful, with no grief, is one the devas can't see. All right. What does it mean? What does it mean? So, just to say about Dhamma study a moment, we might think there's a real meaning there. There is the right meaning for a sutta or a poem or a text, a gem of the Dharma. But actually, all texts are like worlds. And we can play with all the meanings. And there is no right meaning, actually. You know, we might think there is a right meaning, but there isn't. And you could go to school, get your PhD in religious studies and beyond, and become a scholar of the language, and you still wouldn't know the right meaning, because the right meaning is whatever meaning you find in the text. And so I just, I like to say that because when we start studying these texts that come out of a very different world than our own, we may think that we don't really know or that we don't have the training or the education to know the real meaning, but actually as somebody who knows some of these languages and have, has done some of that study, I can tell you that all the texts are multivalent and they speak to us where we are and as we are. So I just want to kind of put that out there as the sort of bedrock of our, of our Dharma study. And now I want to try um, a particular way of approaching the text that will help us begin to massage it and to communally as a sangha 
um, see what happens when we massage it and when we explore it. And so the first thing that I'm going to do is just ask you to speak out words or phrases that caught your attention when we just read this. And so you can just speak them out into the room. No, slow, slow down a little bit. Slow down a little bit. This is great. But when you hear someone, just pause, let it sink in, and then speak. And it may be that some of us speak over each other. That's okay. Say, say again. Who just spoke? Oh, can you say again? You might. One more time. Sorry. Okay. Empty dwelling. Becoming and non becoming are overcome. Wilderness. Very nice. Thank you. So now let's take a moment and settle on some of the feelings that you had when you heard the words of the sutta. And it might be that feelings changed. It might be that certain feelings were mirror-like with it. There could be anything, right, that comes up when we're reading a sutta. The suttas stimulate our emotional self, our emotional body. So what are the feelings that come up? Let's just take a moment for that, bring those into the room. You can go ahead and speak them. Misunderstood. Scared. 
anger. Embrace. Boredom. Steadiness. Relief. Possibility. Freedom. Shame. Skepticism. Beautiful. Thank you. So that gives us some, some collective window into the sutta already and into our responses to the sutta. And those responses could be so broad, right? And we may have heard some resonances, like someone says something like, oh yeah, I did feel that, but I didn't name it, right? So, um, and there was a question voiced, what is the deva? So are there, are there words in the sutta that we don't know, that we don't know those words? And that's, that's worth, let's take a minute for that. So deva, what is a deva? Anyone want to give it a try? Huh? An angel. An angel? Okay, angel. Not bad for David. Mm. Mm. What does Deva mean in Sanskrit or Pali? What, it's a different language, right? We've got a different language here. What does it mean, more or less? God. Angel? God. God. Deva means divine, the div- a divine one. A divine one. And so there is context, right? There is context for the sutta and the words, right? Are powerful. Deva means, yeah, angel, God. Deva is a complex word, actually, right? Because sometimes it means um, something transcendent, but sometimes it actually means something worldly in Buddhism. There are six realms, and one of the realms is the realm of the devas. One of the realms is the realm of the devas, and that's the God's realm, and the devas are not they're not beyond samsara, so they're not free. We could say they're not free. They're on the wheel like we are, that that notion. So I think that context helps a bit with getting a sense of it. But we could play with that word, angels, the divine, God. You plug them in and see what happens when we play with those different meanings. Uh, Well, I think for me, Mm. for Deva, what's coming to my mind is an entity or being that's between humans and God, you know. So. Somewhere between, yeah. yeah, between humans and the gods. Okay, yeah, yeah, good. So what does it mean? What does it mean? So, so what does it mean? What is the sutta trying to tell us? This is a question, right? What is it trying to tell us? So many ways we could think about it. I'm wondering, what do you see 
in terms of what is the sutta trying to communicate to us. So anyone can raise your hand. We're doing this as a communal exploration of the text. Yes, Richard. So one of the phrases that comes up is empty dwelling. And there's, in the suttas, and particularly in a collection of early Buddhist or sayings by the Buddha, the Dhammapada, several times in that collection he makes a reference to house builders, is how some authors would translate it. And house builders has a sense of the way we, he's using it as a metaphor, for the way we fabricate and construct a solid identity, a permanent sense of self. There's a sense of ego clinging to it. And this, to me, seems to be sort of in contrast to that, somebody who perhaps has let go of ego clinging. Nice, okay. Yes. Well, you prompted us to the hearing, which then, you know, it starts with I've heard and then a large number of monks have heard. So this kind of like primal action of hearing and then what's repeated over and over is, the, I mean, the same format of what he's doing, which is exclaiming repeatedly. Um, so there's this repetition of, of this action, which seems like kind of like you know the everyday actions that are sort of not special but are special with like what what we do and notice when we meditate that's just a simple thing that we repeat mm-hmm. yeah mm. nice mm. others yes yes right <laughs> Even before I saw the sutra, I, I was writing in my guide something. Uh, so what I was control is a funny thing. I often find myself uh, trying to control, not to control. So if I want, I want to, I want to feel safe. If I, if I can first have things my way. I will feel safe. But the problem is there are infinite number of things around me and within me I can't control. So I'm always under stress and not feeling safe. So coming to this, so there is, I dwell in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. So as you can see, for me, there's a lot of control, you know, the guards and everywhere, protection. But within that protection, this group didn't feel safe. You know. So I guess for me, what comes to me is like that. When he was under root of a tree or in the wilderness, he was able to let go of all that control and felt safe for the first time. So mm. this is how it relates to me. Mm. I wrote this down even before this. Yeah. <laughs> Yogi, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing the journal 
and how that is so, this is like your sutta. It just landed in your lap today. It feels so resonant with what you were grappling with and what we all grapple with. I just want to say what a mirror that is for all of us. Thank you. Yeah. The antidote is openness and the empty dwelling, being empty rather than having, you know, a set plan and construct and, you know, path. And so the openness, the possibilities are endless, right? But we're always looking for control and answers instead of being open to whatever we might. I mean, was this lesson? Did we know this was the lesson we'd be learning today? No. But here we are. So if we can listen and receive, um, I think it's uh, endless. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh-huh. I was just thinking of the fact that, um, you know, here is this, um, you know, one beyond fear with no grief, blissful, and he, um, he fooled everyone, right? And so there's a lot of judgment around him people who think they know what he's referring to. In reality, he, he was uh, more learned than they, um, and despite all of their knowledge, they never knew that this one was uh, among them. So it was like he was saying, what bliss, what bliss, and they assumed he must be talking about his king, his king, his kingdom. Yeah, missing the kingdom. Right, right, right. Yes. 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 But no. Yes. All right. All right. Right. They didn't recognize it. Yes. It was a group of monks that were that were coming. So it, it it's amazing to me how how much they had to rationalize somebody living the life which in theory they had taken all of these vows to pursue. But they still weren't buying it. Like you couldn't possibly be enjoying, you know, being free of possessions and things like that in, in, in nature. There must be some other explanation, even though that's what I just dedicated my whole life to. Clearly, they, the monks had some sorrows, and uh, the blessed one responds that for whom becoming a nun. So, so isn't that a cryptic line, that last line? So, so what I'd like to do now is actually we're going to move into small groups with this poem. Um, so, and I want to bring, move you into your groups for, that are going to be your home groups for the rest of the time to work on this briefly together. And what I'd like you to do, and we could keep going here, but I actually, actually want to focus a bit on this poem because it's so... That, so the, most of the sutta is not in verse, but this, this part is, and the Buddha's response. And it's very rich, and it's very cryptic also. And I want to hear what you all do with it. So... Um, and we, we want to also have time to be outside, so I want to move us into those groups. So how I'm going to do this is have you 
Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> I didn't think this out very well. Um, let's see. There's about 27 of us, and we need to end up in groups of four. So how many would I count? Four goes into 27. How many times? Seven? Six, seven, three, four. Seven, seven. Okay. So we're going to count to seven. Okay. Did you count already? Okay. Six. Seven. One. Two. Three. Four. Anyone else? Two, three, four. Okay. Okay. I think it'll work out. Let's see. Okay, so all the ones you want to gather together, and all the twos gather together, all the threes and the fours and the fives. Is this going to work? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so maybe um, when you stand up, just raise your hand as to how what your number is, and then people will gather around you. Oh, really? So how many people do you have in your group? Okay, I think we didn't quite do it right. You should have four. So, so we may have to... Does anybody have two? I forgot my number. You forgot your number? Okay, go, go join a group of three. Go join a group of three. You have four, okay. Okay. Just, just join a group of three. Any group of three will do. Yeah, there you go. And, and the other, well, I guess we have groups of three. That's going to be all right. That's going to be all right. Okay. Are there any groups of two? No groups of two. You're a group of two? Okay, so you guys each need to join a group of three, each of you. The two of you need to find a group of three, but not the same group. <laughs> Is we want to, so one so Jim needs a group of three. So if you're a group of three, raise your hand so Jim can join you. Any groups of three? Everyone's in a group of four. Okay, Jim, join any group. Join anybody, any group, any group will do. Okay, so we're going to take this um, poem. You're going to take this poem. We're going to we're going to spread out so you can spread out in the in that room. You can spread out outside. You can spread out in here. And the question is going to be, um, what does it mean becoming and non-becoming are overcome? What does that mean? Um, what does it mean to be beyond fear? And what does it mean to be one that the devas can't see? Okay, so those three questions, but you can bring other things in there as well. Okay, got it? All right.
Um, what does it mean to be that becoming and non-becoming are overcome? What does it mean to be beyond fear? And what does it mean to be one the devas can't see? What does that mean? And so we have, you have um, 15 minutes, 15 minutes, and you're going to come back at, um, at 5 till, okay? You may disperse, and we'll see you at 5 till. And introduce yourself to each other. Don't forget that. Names, <laughs> so forth.
other
you know, so much of the example that you gave, it's like the person is obviously not
Yeah. Yeah. I can just signal them. Thank you. <laughs> So if I can have a volunteer from each group, and I know I didn't say that before you went off in your groups, but um, if you could, if, if anyone could volunteer to summarize your group, um, what you found about one of those three questions, becoming and non-becoming. Let's start with that. What came of your discussion? Becoming and non-becoming. Any insight? Yes. One of our group members said that when you're not focused on becoming and non-becoming, you are here, present. I just realized we need to be using this. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, one of our group members said that when you're not focused on becoming and non-becoming, you are present here, aware. I'm not sure which words we used, but um, yeah, it, it I guess frees you of anything else. Okay. When you're not focused on becoming and non-becoming. You can really be present here now. Okay, it's beautiful interpretation. Other insights that struck you? Yes. Yeah. You can just pass it. Pass it. Yeah. Pass the. You have to wait for the mic because for the recording. Thank you. From group five, we compared um, the uh, becoming and non-becoming and something to be overcome, to the ego. Okay. Uh, so the part of our mind that is very conditioned and telling us um, we should do this and shouldn't do that and, uh, and creates suffering. Okay, thank you. So becoming and non-becoming sort of like a, a form of selfing Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Thank you. Even even when we're trying not to have an ego, there's an ego involved. It's still there. Right. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So, what about fear? What does it mean to be beyond fear? Any insights? Beyond fear. Did we get to that? Yes. Yeah. And we have to pass the mic. Yeah. You can just go ahead and pass it. Yeah. Thank you. 
Um, well, kind of what we were talking about is kind of fear on the ultimate versus relative dimension. And um, that sometimes what we think about fear is really just the ability to respond appropriately in the moment to threat. And beyond fear is that we don't carry that fear with us beyond that moment that is absolutely needed. And maybe even we don't even experience fear per se, but just a just a appropriate reaction to threat uh-huh. or appropriate response to threat. Mm. We need some fear, right? Yeah. So, but but beyond that, we don't need it, right? Something like that. Nice. Yes. We also talked about that. Um, First of all, that primal emotions, any kind of emotions are human and there's no avoiding them. And if there's a fire or a bear, you should feel fear. You should act. Um, You shouldn't just meditate in that moment. Um, But then, yeah, I liked what your reflection that you shared that then the moment changes and hopefully there's a peaceful moment and you don't have to carry that fear. So again, there's the, we talked about the duality, you know, the becoming and non-becoming and how hard it is to just be with whatever is happening and um, rise to the moment if it's calling for fear or uh anger or whatever emotion is, you know, response um, is natural, but um, then allowing it and allowing it to pass and... Mm. These are awesome reads, by the way, I should say, um, because it's so easy to read this as, okay, let's just get rid of fear, and it's all going to be bliss, but these are nuanced reads. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, I guess beyond fear also could mean uh, owning the fear, because uh, I guess in Sanskrit it says tena taktena bunjita, which means the, if you own something, then only you can let it go. Mm. So I guess for me, you know, owning, owning the fear, acknowledging it, then I can access the safety within. Mm. Mm. Lovely. Like that quote. That would be a good one to. Yeah, mm. thank you. Let me ask you for that one later. Okay. <laughs> Only if we own something can we let it go. Mm. It's really, it's wise. Mm. Yeah. So. One more, becoming or fear. Have we not heard from any groups on becoming or fear? Not becoming and non-becoming fear. All the groups. Group four. Group four. How could you? (laughs) Group four, please. 
I'm going to do my best here, everybody, guys. Um, we, we focused on um, becoming and non-becoming, being overcome, and um, what that meant to members of the group was feeling okay just as we are without having to strive and to uh, match others' expectations, but I, I think even more match what arises within us from our own conditioning and needing to um, react from that, being free. Um, I, one thing I said, so I like it, <laughs> um, is uh, a quote, I, I believe it's from the Buddha, which is, um, you can travel the world over and you'll never find someone more worthy of love than you. Um, and then we started to move a little bit into the divas, but we all had different ideas of what they were, and then the bell rang. <laughs> oh, this is a good segue. So could you give us one idea? One idea is that they live in the realm sort of between above and below, and that they may be judges of what's necessary to find nirvana. Okay. But I, I okay. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's move into that territory. This great uh, koan, the one the devas can't see. So this practitioner, this yogi, is the one the devas can't see. All right, anyone? Yes. Back. And say your name too, so we can continue to get to know each other. I want to try to. Yes, I'm one of the Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we were also what was just said, seeing the Davis in some kind of in between place, um, and I just recalled that in the meta chant, one of the ones that I practiced, there's a, there's even a line for. May the devas be free of suffering, right? So maybe the devas suffer unless that chant's wrong, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're still in a, in a in, to some extent, I guess, a worldly realm, whereas the yogi who has done all these things and has all these attributes has really transcended that. And as someone in our group said, they leave no poop behind, right? Huh. So there's no imprint so they can't be seen. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. We're still yes. curious about what the Davis really are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. A nice read. Okay. Yes. It just occurred to me that there's a line in the beginning that says, um, he doesn't enjoy leading the holy life. And I wonder if this line is a reference back to that, uh, the monks assuming that the devas represent the holy life. Uh, it's just a question. Hmm. And um, he is beyond leading the holy life. He doesn't have to do any particular thing. He's not becoming. Hmm. Um, hmm. Just okay. a question. Yes, yeah. Nice. They're all 
They're all good reads. All the all of them. Yes. So in group number one, um, my thought, so I have to just speak for myself, was I can't get past just seeing it as gone to the other side and becoming part of everything. Maybe a little too. Um, but if I am a little more concrete, um, when he goes to the woods, he, he kind of blends in like the wild deer. So I don't know. I think I just see it as being part of what's natural. Hmm. So he's become camouflaged yes, in the wilderness. That's the word. So okay. the Davis camouflaged, and Davis can't see. Yeah, they're okay. a little more special. Uh-huh. Yeah, and they yeah. can't even see. Okay. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was sort mm-hmm. of how I saw it. Mm-hmm. For our group, it was uh, I think a couple of. Uh, phrases that came to our mind was uh, leave no trace and free free from karmic impressions and I guess what just came to me was the, you know the gate gate paragate parasangate bodhi swaha mm-hmm. so yes. when yes. that happens yes. devas can't see you gone, gone beyond yeah. yes <laughs> nice I'm Christine, and uh, I was just sitting here thinking they they remind me sort of like these beautiful guards that are like, oh, I know you want to keep going, but you got some work here, so here you go. And our group was talking about triggers and getting stuck places, and the guards are just like, got to keep working at this level. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you. So I'm Mike, <laughs> another Mike, Michael. Thank you for yes. um, For me, the idea of the divas can't see has something to do with this place of um, non-duality, sort of beyond, so I think of divas as part of creation, as part of something that is... Um, uh, created has certain qualities and that we're talking about something that goes beyond those qualities um, and it's not even not creation it's, it's a space that's not creation it's not it's not, not creation and it's not creation it's, it's a space that is a totally different space and uh, that's, that's what it meant to me. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I had, I had a similar reaction, and I love all the interpretations. Uh, but what I love most is if you just say the line to yourself, is one the devas can't see. It's the space that opens up after you, you say that. Mm. phrase that mm. is so compelling to mm. me. Mm. Mm. Thank you. 
So I saw a parallel between the devas here and the monks who reported this person to the Buddha. Um, it, it's, a, I guess, a very simple, basic interpretation, and it would make them samsaric devas, um, but they weren't able to look deeply and see him for who he was, and they were projecting onto him all these hypotheses that probably reflected their own emotional ob- veils and obscurations and the like. Mm, yeah. Thank you. It's kind of gossipy, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's not so-and-so right speech, said to so-and-so. Yeah. And that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, I was just inspired by your reflection. I'm sorry, Eric. Eric. Um, that and so the the devas i think like have it pretty good they have like many 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 years of living well but they can still die and be reborn even in hell so they're not you know they're not off the hook um and then the space after is like not nameable that's above that I guess just yeah. just yeah. echoing what you said. I thought that was really interesting. So this, yeah, behind you. That that I want to come back to. The unnameable, yes. But go ahead. Mm-hmm. When um, when you read that line before we left the room, what arose in me was, ah, what are the ways I want to be seen, and what gets in the way, or how is that an obstruction? And we also talked in our group about, uh, you know, I have a fuzzy idea of what devas are, and um, people have offered many different interpretations, and also how people in our lives can be a kind of deva for us, or what are the devas in myself that are judging? Yeah, very nice. The inner devas, yes, yeah. Um, I just feel like there is too much bashing of devas going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so <laughs> here it says, as you said, if you read it carefully, it says the one devas can see, but maybe they can feel, mm. maybe they can listen, maybe they can smell. Mm. Thank you, thank you. With all due respect to the Davis, yes, yes. No, this is this is good. All right. So this is where we're going to head next: is to the space of the unnameable and the space that's opened up. You know, there is something about poetry um, that is, uh, gets underneath our conceptual mind. And so I appreciated just now the naming of the unnameable or the sort of naming of there's a kind of a, of a 
undescribable, indescribable gap that opens up when we are working with verses and with deeper truths, in fact, and that they are more present in some ways, they get more present in our body than they are in the mind. And the body understands poetry better, I think, in some ways than the mind does. The emotional self and the embodied self gets the truths that are being transmitted in poetry. And those are very much like the truths that we encounter in the practice of meditation, in the practice of the Dharma, the truths that can't be named because they aren't conceptual truths. And we are starting to access this portal, like this doorway into some totally other way of knowing that has nothing to do with thinking. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to do that. And the wilderness is reflecting that kind of knowing back to us. And because it too is non-conceptual, the trees are not thinking in the way that we think. Are they knowing? Oh, they must be knowing. And the stones are not thinking in the way that we think, but are they present and embodied and communicating? They are communicating. And so in our, in our more civilized environments and our more civilized culture, and I'd say even in our educational system, and even in, often in the sort of religious education system that we might have been in, um, some of us have studied a lot of Dharma or been in these contexts, um, we may not have received permission to communicate with the wilderness um, in a deep way. And, and sort of in the way that many of us are raised in the West, right? We go to the state park or we go to the national park or we go to our local park to, to walk and to maybe we go with friends and we chat and we, um, we feel apart and we feel held, we feel healed. But it's, an, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to actually commune with the wild. And, and we can go, we can make a practice of the wild, a practice of communing. And, and part of that practice involves reimagining what is possible for you as a human being in terms of your relationship with the non-human world. And, and so what I'm hoping to offer you here, and starting when we go outside here in a little bit, in a few minutes, is some 
just some practices that are kind of like cracks to get your foot in the door. Now, we all may have our foot in the door. I'm not assuming that you don't. You may have have many of these practices already yourself. So I'm not saying like, I'm going to introduce you necessarily to something that's totally new to you. But I will be offering suggestions for what we can do out in the wild as a way to play with our deepening in our communication with the non-human world and beginning to trust or rather really to remember because our ancestors communicated in these ways. No question about it. Not that many hundreds of years ago, or we can go back thousands of years, our ancestors, no matter who we are, were indigenous peoples. And those ancestors were in deep relationship with the earth and the plant world and the animal world that they relied upon as for food and for all kinds of other things as well. Shelter, um, clothing, it all came from the non-human world and there was deep relationship with that world. And the religious relationship with that world was also deep. And so we, we in this country, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. If you have, how many people have been to Asia? Have been to countries in Asia, right? And walked around and tracked or gone into parks or, I mean, there are shrines everywhere in the natural world. There are shrines on the trails, there are shrines on the sides of mountains. Um, the, the natural world is sacralized in so many parts of the world, and it was sacralized here by the Native Americans. These were sacred places, sacred hills, sacred lands, sacred rocks. Um, this was the temple. So we're kind of remembering. We are remembering, and that's why it's a rewilding we already are wild in some kind of deep way in our DNA. We know we are animals, but we've forgotten, uh, especially in this day and age, in this society where the sacralization has fallen away and, and we've developed this kind of um, yeah, consumer relationship to the natural world. This idea that we own land. I mean, oh, <laughs> it's, it's very odd. So, so we're going to be going out into the natural world and exploring some of these ways we can be in deep relationship with the non-human world. And um, yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that, and then I'll, we'll, we'll take up at the trailhead a little bit about what's next. But I do want you to be prepared for that. So I'm going to let you guys go off for about 15 minutes to your room to get. Um, so we're just going to we're going to go outside and do a hike, uh, hike and slow walk um, around the property on a trail. So you're going to want to have some good shoes, and um, we aren't going to sit. Uh, we're going to keep moving this morning, but we will be sitting this afternoon, so we're going to need more equipment in the afternoon. Um, but this 
morning, we're just going to keep moving. So you're going to need some good shoes. Um, you might want to bring a backpack just to put a raincoat in it, although I don't think it's going to rain, or just a little shawl or something to keep yourself warm if you think you might need it, or a little overcoat or a shirt. And mosquito repellent, probably, if you're, um, there is natural mosquito repellent here at BCBS. There is some in the foyer as you walk in the main room. So you can get yourself sprayed up if you like. And um, any other questions about what we might need on the trail? I think that's what all we might need. How long is that? About an hour. The whole thing will take us about an hour. Yes. And we'll end up back here for a little for a little debrief. Uh, so we're going to be meeting at the trailhead, which is, well, let's see. No, let's just meet in front of the house. Let's meet in front of the house, and we'll walk down to the trailhead. I think that's easier. Okay. And we'll keeping noble silence until we meet there. Thank you. So 15 minutes, about 1045. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.